Well, if you would, take your Bible and turn to the book of 1 Peter. I know that probably doesn't come as any major surprise to you, but uh, turn to, to 1 Peter. If you're not familiar with where 1 Peter is in the Bible, if you turn to the very end to Revelation and begin to slowly back up, you'll probably get close to 1 Peter in, in, in a short amount of pages. Also, if you have your phone or, or your tablet and you have a copy of God's Word on there, feel free to open that up. We're going to be looking at the end of chapter 4 in 1 Peter. As well, on the back of your worship guide, you'll notice there are a couple of just kind of a rough skeleton outline of the notes if you want to follow along with that. In addition, on the back, at the top, is the memory verse that we've been working on together. And so we're going to practice that, practice a particular portion of that this morning, and Peggy has been working on putting this memory verse to music, and so hopefully within the next week or two, we'll have this put to music, because one thing I've learned from my kids is you put something to a song, and people remember it. (laughs) They memorize songs. They don't memorize your sermon, which is just heartbreaking, but it's just the reality. So they, no one remembers that, but they remember the words to songs, and so uh, if you've heard any little kids sing Let It Go hundreds of times, you know that they... They remember songs, and so uh, we're going to put this, put this to music, and hopefully that will help us. But let's look at this memory verse on the top of our worship guide. We're going to, I'm going to turn my mic off in just a second, and so I don't sound uh, too awkward in the background, but we're going to, I'm going to turn my mic off, and we're going to say this verse together, and then we're going to practice a portion of it. So 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, let's say it together. One, two, three. focus on this morning is that phrase that says, always being prepared to make a defense. It's easier to learn that in two parts. Learn it as always being prepared, and then you kind of hold those words together in your head, and then to make a defense. I don't know, I think we've talked about this before, but you know those situations in life where someone says something to you, and then a few hours later you think of a great comeback? And you wish, oh, I wish I would have thought of that at the time. You know, that I could have really gotten that person. There's this idea that we need to always be prepared, not to slam somebody with a good comeback, but always be prepared to make a defense. And so as you're thinking through this particular scripture, let's focus on that phrase, always be prepared. And then you think, prepared for what? To make a defense. And then as you begin to put it together phrase by phrase, You can flow through the rest of Scripture. And so if you need something to think about this week, think about that phrase, always being prepared. Always being prepared. And let that kind of resonate with you. All right. Let's look at 1 Peter chapter 4. And we are going to read verses 12 through 19. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 19. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes up on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. 
If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or a thief, or an evildoer, or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this message that you've given to us through Peter. And we'll be reminded this morning of how Peter's life impacted what he was writing right here. And God, help us to think how our lives in 2014 interact with this text. What does being a Christian mean in our lives right now? Help us to see that this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In the year 5 B.C., a young couple welcomed a baby boy into their family in the Galilee region, the northern region of what we now know as the Holy Land. This, com- this couple lived in a comfortable, if not a somewhat small home. They were surrounded by their extended family. The father was prominent among the men in the community. The young boy went to a good school. He even had a tutor who took him to school and made sure he did his homework, made sure he completed all of his lessons. He grew up into his father's world, his father's job. He had a good job. He grew up and he had a nice family and a comfortable house. And he lived longer than could be expected for that time and ultimately ended up in a simple death around 50 A.D. That's all we really know about this man because I've just completely made up his story. But um, about the same time in 5 B.C., another boy was born. This time not in Galilee, but in the southern part of the Holy Land in a place called Bethlehem. His parents did not have a comfortable place for him to be born. Not long after he was born, they found themselves on the run to another country just to stay alive. Once they returned to the father's town in Nazareth, the father worked a blue-collar job. Maybe as a carpenter, but more likely actually as a stone worker, a stonemason. The boy grew up with limited formal education, though he did understand the family's religion quite well. He spent some time in his father's blue-collar work, but most of his life was spent on the road. He had no bed most of the time, and he was often betrayed and shunned by his friends. He ultimately was convicted in an unjust trial and killed in the early 30s A.D. through the public torture and humiliation of a Roman cross. This man's name was Jesus, and his story is based on the first four books of the New Testament. Here's the point I want to make this morning based on those two stories. If I'm honest with myself, and if we're honest with ourselves, we oftentimes would like our story, or our kids' stories, or our grandkids' stories to sound more like the first person I mentioned. Good family, good comfortable place to live, good job, enjoyed some privilege, some comfort, lived a nice life. Oftentimes, we would not want our lives 
or our kids' lives or our grandkids' lives to sound like the second story that I just read. Shunned by friends, no place to lay his head, unjust trial, public humiliation, and death. Which of those do we want to characterize our lives? So much of that time, it's that first story, and yet the reality is that as a follower of Jesus Christ, the second story is our story. That those who follow Jesus have denied themselves, taken up their cross, and they will follow him even if it does not mean comfortable house, even if it does not mean comfortable job, even if it does not mean nice, simple end to life, because this is our Savior. His story is the second story here. And the reality of it is that being a Christian sometimes, if not oftentimes, will mean suffering. If that is the way of our Savior, then that will often be the way of his people, of his followers. And what we have to come to grips with in 2014 is what does it mean to be a Christian if that path means suffering? How do we make sense of that? 1 Peter chapter 4 is a text that focuses our hearts and our minds in that direction. So we're going to think about that this morning. Here's the first question. Why even talk about suffering? You come in here after a difficult week. You come in here, hard things are happening. You say, Owen, I just don't need a downer topic like that right now in my life. Like, why, why would you talk about suffering? Here's the first reason. The first reason we talk about suffering is very simply because God's word addresses it. As we go through books of the Bible together on Sunday morning, I hope you see that I'm not just randomly picking out topics. The reason we're talking about suffering this morning is because the second half of 1 Peter chapter 4 addresses suffering. It's the next topic that Peter addresses, therefore we're going to engage with it. That's caused me a couple of problems in 1 Peter, because 1 Peter has brought up some really difficult issues, and we just can't skirt by them. We, we have to deal with them. This, this approach to preaching is sometimes what we call expository or, or expositional. We're, just, we're looking at text as they come, not making up the topics, but saying we're going to deal with God's word as, as it's a, presented to us. And so that's what we're doing this morning. We're talking about suffering because God's word addresses it. The second reason we talk about suffering is because, guess what? We live in a world full of suffering. If you turn on the TV or you walk outside your own home, or frankly, if you just wake up in the morning, guess what? We live in a world that oftentimes is characterized by suffering. And if you're not facing suffering right now in your life, good chance is suffering is coming sometime in the near future. And I, and I don't say that, once again, to be a downer, but just to say that is the world in which we live. And so we can either close our eyes to it, or we can say we have to think about how as Christians do we deal with this? Another reason we talk about suffering is because suffering is the worldwide, history-long reality for Christians. We have to remember, and, and we, we, never, we never make light of or, or show any disrespect for this place in which we gather, because it's a beautiful building, and we do our best to get the temperature right, and it's a safe, comfortable place to sit. But our gathering for worship does not match the reality that most believers face around the world when they gather for worship. 
We're gathered in a place with pretty good lighting, decent sound, decent temperature. Most people, when they gather for worship, are in very uncomfortable circumstances with maybe one light in the middle of the room. And there's a good chance that they are going to be persecuted for their faith. They're going to be attacked. And so we have to remember that even if we're not facing that type of suffering as believers, it is the worldwide reality. It is the history-long reality for God's people is that suffering will come. And then the fourth reason that we deal with suffering is very simply suffering is very simply the reason that suffering demands a response. When hard times come in life, and when we face suffering, we can either pretend like it's not happening and hide our head in the sand, or we can say, we have to make sense of this. It doesn't matter if your coworkers or your family members or your neighbors are religious people or not. It doesn't matter if they're Christians or not. All of us have to come to terms with what it means to live in a world where people face suffering. Everybody has to make sense of that in some way. And what we want to do is make sense of that in a way that matches God's word. What does it look like as Christians to deal with a topic like suffering? Now, on that point, the second question is, what do we mean by suffering in this passage? My mom makes very good chocolate chip cookies, all right? My wife, when we first were married, tried to match those chocolate chip cookies. It didn't necessarily happen the first time. And so I'm in that new husband role of wife tries to make something that mom makes really well. doesn't turn out so well, and you have to figure out how to negotiate that. Like, do you say, nice try, or... uh, you know, uh, yeah, these are great. They're not quite like mom's. Well, that's not going to go well. You know, how, how, do you make, how do you make sense of this? But my mom, now, now granted, Amanda has, Amanda's not going to let any challenge go unmet. And, and so she's figured it out. She went straight to the source and figured out how to do this. But uh, my mom would make us these chocolate chip cookies. And I had two younger brothers and my dad. So that put four males in the house. And so mom would make these. And as soon as they came out of the oven, before they were even cooled, We're just consuming these things, just inhaling them. And then a few minutes later, we would all complain of of a tummy ache. And she would say, I have no sympathy for you. Like, your suffering is because of your own dumb choice to eat eight cookies at, at one time. And so if you're suffering because of your choice like that, I have no sympathy. There is a type of suffering that we face in life that we bring upon ourselves. Okay, let's just be honest. Sometimes we suffer because we bring that suffering upon ourselves. That particular type of suffering, chocolate chip cookie suffering, is not what Peter is, is addressing here. What Peter is addressing in this passage right here is what we would call unjust suffering. Or specifically, suffering that comes as a result of being a follower of Jesus. There is suffering that we face in life that frankly, we did not bring upon ourselves, except in the sense that we are sinners living in a world that is fallen, that is under this curse of sin. And so we do face suffering in that sense, but it's not a suffering that we directly bring upon ourselves. I want to give you a couple of words to kind of make sense of this. This culture that Peter lived in is what we would call an honor-shame culture. And so when Peter is talking about suffering here, 
largely what he is talking about is a sense of shame that would come up on you for following Jesus. If you don't follow Jesus, you are honored. Good things will come to you. If you follow Jesus, you are given shame. If you need, how, need to know how to understand shame, just think about middle school. Whatever the popular opinion is in middle school, that would be the position of honor. If you're on the outside looking in in middle school, you're in a place of shame. You are being humiliated, pushed to the side by whatever the group opinion is. And one thing that we all learn in adulthood is we never escape middle school, which is just a tragic reality to to embrace, but the reality that we all, to some extent in adulthood, still live in middle school. That whatever the group opinion is, is, is the place of honor, but if you are outside of that group, that majority group, then you are going to feel shame, or you're going to feel rejection. And much of what Peter is dealing with here is that type of suffering. Sometimes physical suffering, yes, but sometimes it's just shame of not being part of the group. And so we have to say, how as Christians are we going to respond to suffering? And there are three ways that Peter gives us, and those are kind of our three points for this morning as we walk through this. Point number one, how do we deal with suffering? Don't be surprised, but rejoice in God. Look back at 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12. Look at verse 12 right there. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. A good word to make sense of what's going on there for the word strange is if you substituted the word foreign. In other words, strange here doesn't mean uh, strange like weird. Strange here means foreign to your experience. In other words, when something hard happens in life, when you suffer shame for being a Christian, when you just face physical suffering, maybe it's some type of illness that's come, or maybe it's just sorrow that's come into your family, whatever your suffering looks like that comes into your life, Peter says, don't don't be surprised. Don't think that is foreign. In other words, what Peter is trying to say is just because you're a Christian, you should have no expectation that you're going to be immune to suffering. Can we just promise to be rid of the theology? to be rid of the type of preaching that says that if you follow Jesus, health and wealth and prosperity will come your way. Let's just be rid of that because that's exactly what Peter is saying here is that if you are following Jesus, don't be surprised when suffering comes. Don't think that that is a strange thing for a Christian to face because we live in a world where suffering is a reality and we are going to face it. Don't be surprised, don't think it's strange when it comes, but when it comes, you're supposed to do what? Rejoice. Now, if that doesn't bother you just a little bit, we're we're not kind of tracking here, because Peter is saying when that difficulty comes, when you face shame, when you face physical suffering, your result, your response to that should be joy. And let's just face it, when most of us face suffering, joy, rejoicing, is not the first response that comes. So how do we get to that point? How do we get to the point of rejoicing in the midst of suffering? 
And I want to show you something that has just kind of wrecked my life this week. Something that, that I've not, not seen so clearly in God's word before. Let's look at verse 13. And we're, we're going to put some of the pieces together. And, and hopefully I can communicate some of, of, of what God has been speaking to my heart this week. Verse 13. If you don't have a copy of God's word in front of you, just listen closely to how these parts connect together. Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. Okay, so we're supposed to rejoice. And then the next half of verse 13 says, so that or that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. What I had never made sense of, I don't think, is how the two parts of verse 13 fit together. The first part says rejoice as you share Christ's sufferings. Well, that's hard enough. But then the second half says that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. So we rejoice now in suffering so that one day we will also rejoice at the appearing of Jesus Christ. And here's what I want us to see so clearly. And here's what I've been trying to make sense of in my life this week. Those people, or I should say me... Those of us who rejoice in the good things that Jesus does for us now, who rejoice in those good and comfortable and easy things, will only want the good things that come as a result of getting to heaven. In other words, when we talk about this great buffet in the sky, or we talk about the good things that are going to happen to us in heaven... We are anticipating things, good things that we will get as a result of following Jesus. And often that will transfer into our lives now. We want the good things, the easy things that come as a result of following Jesus. But what this text says right here is rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad, not when you get good things in heaven, but when his glory is revealed. And so what we find is, if in this life we are forced to hold tight to Jesus in times of suffering, then when we encounter him in glory, we will be not looking for the good things that he can give us. We will just be simply basking in his glory and his goodness and what he has done for us. And we have to be so careful. Do I want the good, easy things that Jesus can give me, or do I want Jesus? Because he is all that I need for life. So that one day when I encounter him, I will not be looking for all that he can give me. I will just be looking for him. Because he is the one who sustains me now, and he is the one that I will worship forever. And in my mind, I've been trying to transfer out of this old way of thinking this week. It's not about what Jesus can give me now so that I can get good things later. It's about who Jesus is for me now so that one day I will worship him for that forever. And I've had so much trouble trying to transfer my thinking this week and and make sense of what does it mean, what does it look like to rejoice in sufferings. Paul Brand, who was a missionary surgeon to India, wrote about this in his book. His book is called Pain, The Gift Nobody Wants. It's a great subtitle. Pain, The Gift Nobody Wants. Paul Brand says, I have come to see that pain and pleasure come to us not as opposites, 
but as Siamese twins. So pain and pleasure joined together, strangely joined and intertwined. Nearly all my memories of happiness involve some element of pain or struggle. If we think about our lives, those times of greatest happiness, greatest joy, greatest experience of God's presence were likely also times that we were facing some sort of difficulty. If you need exhibit A, it would be any woman who has experienced the reality of childbirth. Um, and every rule for guy is to say, don't make any analogy to that. It just is. It's just, it's just the experience that happens. And so the idea that great happiness could also come along with great pain and the fact that those two fit together. And so how do we respond to suffering as Christians? We are not surprised when it comes, but we rejoice in Christ. Here's the second thing. We're not supposed to be ashamed, but we're supposed to glorify God. Look at verse 14 of of 1 Peter chapter 4. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Uh, You can circle in your Bible the word blessed and write out something like equals Matthew 5 or equals Beatitudes. If you're familiar with the Sermon on the Mount, this is the same, same phrasing, same word that goes along with those Beatitudes. Because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Now the power of this particular passage is to remember who's writing it. Who's it coming from? It's coming from Peter. What do we remember from Peter's life at the time of Jesus' death? What did Peter do? He was ashamed. He was afraid of being insulted for Jesus' name. And so he denied Jesus three times at the time of Jesus, uh, as he was preparing for crucifixion, as he was being put on trial. So think about what it would have felt like Let me reread these verses. Think about Peter making sense of these verses. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. And Peter's thinking back to that time that he was insulted, but he denied Christ. Because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, as a follower of Christ... Let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Have you ever made a really, 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 really big mistake and said to yourself, there is no way on earth I will ever do that again? Because the sense of anguish, the sense of sorrow, the sense of guilt is so great. Think about Peter denying his Lord at the moment of Jesus' greatest pain And then Jesus comes back after the resurrection and restores Peter. What do you think Peter's favorite sermon was? It was probably, hey, if you're insulted, don't deny Jesus because I've been down that road. And many of you as parents and grandparents have spoken into your kid's life or your grandkid's life and said, hey, that that, that road of denying Jesus, I've been down that road. It's not worth going down it because I know that anguish. I know that sorrow. I know what it feels like to be ashamed because I denied Christ or did not live for him. 
Do not go down that road. Spend your life glorifying God. And if you are going down that road of not living for the Lord, can we all just say together, it is not worth it to go down that road. Spend your life not being ashamed of Jesus, but living your life for him. And so this means if you are a family member and you lose status in your family, you lose some inheritance in your family because you're a follower of Jesus, don't be ashamed of that because your eternal reward is so much greater. And if you're an employee and you lose status with your buddies because you don't buy into the group think that speaks badly of your employer, don't be ashamed of that as a Christian because you are showing your, your, your co-workers what it means to honor someone. There are examples after example. If you're in, in high school, if you're in school and you don't go along with the crowd that is following the way of sin and you take on some shame for being a Christian, this text says embrace that because God's spirit is at work in your life. Don't be ashamed of Christ, but glorify God with your lives. Third point, this is our final point. So don't be, don't be surprised, don't be ashamed, and then finally, don't be sinful, but trust God. Trust God by doing good. Look at verse 18, or actually 17, I'm sorry. Look at 17. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. We're going to come back to that phrase because I frankly didn't know what it meant when we started. So, for it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. If it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? If the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. All right, how do we make sense of this last point here at the end of 1 Peter 4? Here's the backdrop to it. Maybe you as a Christian, or you can imagine this scenario if you've never experienced, you're trying to live for Christ, you're trying to follow Jesus, and things aren't going very well. Life is hard, you're not moving up in your job, your family is suffering physically, life is just not going well. Here's this other person over here, and they're just totally living for the things of the world. They give no regard to the Lord. They don't care about Jesus. And what's happening in their life? They're making a lot of money. They look really happy. Their family's doing well. Listen to Psalm 73. Listen to the psalmist. The psalmist says, I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. So you look out there, and people are not following the Lord, and it looks like they're prospering, And you're thinking, I'm envious of that. I want my life to look like that. And they're not following the Lord. How did those two things go together? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. I have kept my heart clean in vain. And I washed my hands with no result. Ooh, that that says, I'm trying to follow Jesus, and I'm not getting anything out of it. Those people, they're not following Jesus, and it looks like life is going really well for them. How do I put those two realities together? How do I make sense of that? What Peter says in verse 17 is, it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. When we read that word judgment in that verse, we have to kind of take out, we hear judgment and we think of condemnation or punishment. 
take, take that word out of your mind just for a minute. When we read judgment right here, it's simply the act of a judge. Think about a judge separating the, the uh, innocent from the guilty. Matthew 25, if you need to write a note, Matthew 25 is the background here. As we think about in the end times of the final judgment, God separating the sheep from the goats. And it says it's time for judgment to begin with a household of God. All throughout scripture, when, when God renders judgment on the earth, that judgment, determining who is with him and who is against him, that judgment always begins with his people. He always judges his people first to determine if they are truly with him, if they are truly following him. And so when it says it's time for judgment to begin with the household of God, what this text is saying is it is time for us to determine if we are truly following the Lord. It's time for us to figure out who is serious. I guess that's the phrase I'm trying to get to. It's time for us to figure out who is truly serious about their faith. As you listen to reports in the media, sometimes you'll, you'll hear that the number of Christians is decreasing. That there are less and less Christians now than there ever have been. That may be the case, or more likely what is happening is there are less and less fake Christians who are reporting themselves as Christians when a pollster comes by and asks, hey, what's your faith? Because now, in the world in which we live, being a Christian is beginning to lose some of that popular public acclaim that maybe it had a generation past. And so if somebody calls you on the phone and says, hey, will you participate in this poll? And they ask you what your religion is, people who are borderline, maybe follow Jesus, maybe don't, they're less likely now to say, yeah, I'm a Christian. More likely now they're going to say, I'm a nun. Not N-U-N none, but an N-O-N-E none. I, I just don't have any religion. I just don't have any particular faith. And so what it shows up in the statistics is that there are less Christians. Well, there are probably just as many authentic people who are sold out for Jesus, just less people who were faking it, posing as Christians, and now they don't want to be known as that. What does that have to do with this passage? Judgment is beginning with the house of God. We live in a time where people are being forced to say, am I with Jesus or am I not with Jesus? And so when you see baptism happening, like Dylan and Haley had today, baptism is a way of saying, I am with Jesus, totally with him. I'm going to take on his suffering. I'm going to take on his life and I'm going to live in that newness. And so when we are baptized, we are showing people, I am with Jesus. That judgment is beginning with the household of God. And what is the result of that? And this is our final theme for this morning. What is the result? Verse 18. If the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Well, they'll never worship the Lord. They'll continue to remain apart from him. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. This is where I want us to end this morning. How do we respond to suffering as Christians? Guess how we respond? By doing good. When you face physical suffering 
in your life, how do you respond in a way that honors the Lord? You do good to others. When you are shamed for following Jesus, how do you respond to that? You do good for others. When you are ostracized at school or at your job, how do you deal with that shame and that suffering? You do good. Look on the screen at Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12 explains this as well as anything else that that I know. It says, Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. What happens when you suffer? Invite people into your home. Do you know how counterintuitive that is? When I'm suffering, I don't want anybody around me, especially not in my home. And this passage says, when you're dealing with difficulty, invite people over. Jesus always turned things around on us. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. What do I do when I'm suffering? I go find someone else who is suffering and say, I will stand with you. I'm not going to be proud. I'm going to say, I'm going to do what my Savior did. I'm going to humble myself and care for you. Verse 17, do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, and this is just, it sounds like crazy speak, but this is what we do when we suffer. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. In other words, he will have to deal with the reality in which he's living. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. If you want to know how to respond to suffering in your life this morning, the most powerful way sometimes that we can respond to suffering is that in just a minute, you will stand up and with all of your heart, you will sing, Because He Lives. And you will say, That is my story. That is what I am going to stand on. And so the way that we respond to that difficulty, we respond to that shame, is through praise. Is through honoring the Lord. Is through doing good to others. If there is someone who is shaming you because of your Christian faith, you know what your response is this week? You think of the absolute best thing that you can do for that person, and you go out and you do it. If you're saying, I'm in so much pain, and I'm in so much hurt, and my family is hurting, you know what you do this week? You do the impossible and you invite someone over to your house. You say, I can't do that. Practice hospitality. When we are suffering, we say, Lord, I trust you. I will praise you. I will live for you. And I will do good because that's what you're calling me to do. We're going to pray. And after we pray, we're going to sing together. And that song may be the best way that you can respond to suffering. Or you may say, I just need somebody to pray for me. I'll be down here at the front. I know that Brother Ernie would be glad to pray with you. Whatever the case, if you just need someone to pray for you because of the suffering that you're facing, we will be here for you at the front. However the Lord is leading you to respond, we want to give you a chance to do that. Let's pray, and then we're going to sing together.